Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that, like John Woo, thinks that the only way that the two turtle doves in that one song could have been better is if they were in slow motion. Hello, everybody. I'm Helen O'Hara, your host, and welcome back to Bar Humbug. And today we are talking about a Christmas movie that may have the lowest level of Christmassiness of any movie <laughs> we've talked about on this show so far. I refer, of course, to John Woo's Silent Night, starring Joel Kinnaman, um, as uh, a man who loses his son to gang-related violence, to a stray bullet one Christmas in a very tragic and horrible accident, and decides that the best thing to do would be to spend his following year training to take down the terrorists or the, the gangsters, I guess, responsible. Spoiler, he also loses his voice on the same day uh, that he loses his son. So this entire film is done without traditional dialogue. There's a couple of bits of, you know, people talking on radio or TV, but basic and a couple of, like, let's be honest, like almost audible words. But generally speaking, they sort of stick to the gimmick. And here to discuss it with me is Amon Warman. Amon, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I was excited to check this one out, but I was more excited to chat about it with you. So let's do that. Yeah. So like I say, this is this is massively un-Christmassy. It starts with mm-hmm. a horrendous tragedy on Christmas Day. We actually join it sort of media res with, um, with Joel Kinnaman's Brian chasing the people responsible through the streets in a bloodied Christmas jumper, um, which is a Pretty, pretty, you know, as action movies goes, a chase scene goes, pretty effective. As a Christmas movie goes, not at all Christmassy. Um, (laughs) And then um, we go on from there basically for him to a sort of year-long training montage as he first, Mm -hmm. you know, gets himself back in shape after sustaining some injuries uh, as a result of that chase and then decides to take down everyone responsible for his his unbearable loss. So what did you think of this overall? Yeah, I... I don't think this is all out and out bad, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's good either. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of in that space. There are some things that I did like about it, but when your movie is directed by John Woo, there's certain expectations that come along with that. And I don't think this film comes anywhere near close to matching 
uh, or exceeding those expectations. And that's a shame because anytime you see a new John Woo picture, this is his first American film in 20 years. It's like, okay, this, this is something worthy of excitement, especially for us action junkies. You're like, okay, let's, let's do it. And I didn't feel, it didn't feel warranted by what I was seeing uh, on screen. And, and that, that was the big shame of this film to me. I mean, to be honest, I, I didn't think the action scenes in this film were were bad or anything. I mean, you know, I, th- I feel like we are, I talk about grading Christmas movies on a curve and that curve is that a Christmas movie doesn't have to be as good as n- a normal movie to be watchable because you're sitting there in a food coma and, you know, you can put up with quite a lot. Um, but equally, I don't want to judge John Woo on a different curve, which is that unless it is surpassingly brilliant, like mm. a hard-boiled, you know, like a face-off, like a better tomorrow, whatever your particular flavour of John Woo is out there. Mm. I don't want to say it's bad because the action in this, I think, is pretty good, actually. I think it. I think he does things with the camera. He does things with the cinematography that feel f- fresh to me. I haven't seen all of his films in the intervening 20 years since he left Hollywood and Hollywood really needs to have a word with itself that, you know, they didn't make a welcoming environment for John Woo, quite frankly. But, you know, I, it felt like he has been trying new things. It has He has been pushing himself. He hasn't been resting on his enormous sack of laurels. Um, <laughs> So, so that for me wasn't the big thing, and I thought that opening chase actually was great. really, really good. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Joel Kinnaman for people who maybe don't know him, I think he's still not a big household name, and I think I want to talk about him as well. Um, but he is, he's a big guy; he's like six foot four or something. I think about as I think about two or three times as broad across the shoulders, and um, he is. You know, he's he's a convincing action guy, even at the beginning of this film, where he's, he's not meant to have been training or anything else. Like, he's just in such a flood of, of adrenaline and emotion and just overwhelm that, you know, if I saw him coming at me with a piece of, you know, iron bar or whatever, I'd be pretty worried. And and so are the people that he's kind of, you know, running, running past. Um, so I thought that was really, really brilliant. And also the fact that you don't quite know what's happening at that moment in the film, because, you know, you know, the premise of the film, we've talked about it here. If you've, if you're watching this film, you've probably seen the trailer, you know, the premise, but you're like dropped into this story. And you're like, where are we? Is this one of these ones where we're dropped into the middle of his revenge and then we're going to flash back a whole year. And it only gradually becomes apparent that no, the tragedy has only just happened. And this is the immediate aftermath. And it is. And so the emotion is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That, that first, action sequence is really really good and really really striking and it's visually interesting while making you ask questions about what exactly is going on and i wish the rest of the movie sort of maintained that type of vibe because for for me while some of the action is good i'm excited to talk about a fight that takes place in 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 his house with uh, one of the gang i think think that was great some of the action was just lacking a spark for me. And some of the action reminded me of stuff which has been done better fairly recently. Uh, there's a stairwell fight, which again is solid, but I'm like, we've just seen No Time to Die and it was done better there, I think. Oh, but so, it's done better. I mean, think, think uh, Charlize Theron in Atomic Blondes, you know, that's a staircase right. fight. Exactly, exactly. So there was that too. Yeah, okay, that, that's fair. I did have the same thought during the, the stairway thing. I think that wasn't meant to be though the climax, I guess of that scene, you know, it wasn't meant to be, that was not the set piece of that moment. Uh, and he does some interesting things like that. You know, he has, 
you know, there are like hordes of people coming at Joel Kinnaman in that moment, which does come quite late in the film, but they're not the ones we have to worry about. So maybe there's something to be said for kind of getting that through that scene pretty quickly, because there are going to be people that he does have to worry about and they're sort of, spoiler, they're at the top of the stairs. They're at the top of the stairs, Brian, look out. Yeah. Anyway. But you are totally right on Joel Kinnaman. Like, he's very, very good in this. I wish, look, there's a, there's a certain element of the character and how he goes about dealing with the people responsible and who, who those people are that I really want to talk about because it's a big problem for me. But in terms of the character and being, working itself, in this, in this case, working himself up to be a badass, um, which is cool to see, although I think the film thing is a little bit, maybe a little bit too much on that side of things, but also having the vulnerable human court is very sort of in Joel Kinnaman's wheelhouse. You think about Robocop, you think about Rick Flagg, who I really liked in The Suicide Squad. He's very good at playing that type of character, and I think this is another example of that. He is. I think he is He is great at bringing nuance to things. I am going to absolutely shill for him in For All Mankind. Uh, a lot of people haven't seen it. Most people haven't seen it, I think, because it's on Apple TV and nobody has Apple TV. <laughs> but this is, a, this is a show that I cannot recommend enough. It's an alt history about the space race, and he plays one of the original sort of astronauts of the late 1960s who ends up being pivotal to that alt or alternate history, basically where the space race remains a race because the Russians get to the moon first and America keeps trying to play catch up. And uh, it's about how does the world change as a result. And his figure, Ed Baldwin, is there through, well, certainly I can say he's at the start of season four because we're that far up at the moment as we record this, as you're listening to this. I'm not <laughs> going to give away any spoilers for it, whatever may be coming. I haven't seen the end of season four myself, but he's mm-hmm. he's he endures for quite some time. Um, and he is fan-freaking-tastic in that show. He is absolutely off the charts. And I think he's been really good in TV generally. He's been really good in House of Cards. He was... He was the opponent kind of politician running for president. He was really, really good in, um, was it The Bridge? I always get all of the Scandi Noirs mixed up. He's in one of the Scandi Noirs. He is Scandinavian and he was very good in it. (laughs) So uh, until now, I have been working on a theory basically that if Joel Kinnaman is in a TV show, it's pretty near a must watch. If he's in a Mm. film, his film choices and the films he's been in have not been quite... So unblemished a record. So, you know, I was really hoping this would be an exception to the rule and I'm not sure that it 100% has been, if I'm honest. But but not because of his performance. His no, performance spawn. He's great. The, the depth of feeling that he manages to bring out of his character without having any dialogue to speak with, um, I think is really, really good. And even though the his wife, played by... Uh, Catalina Moreno. She's also very good. I wish she had more to do to add to the character because what we end up with is still quite surface level. But some of the stuff they do with that relationship as it deteriorates early on, I think is really good and does have a, a couple of woo flourishes. The way the camera tracks her tear uh, at one point was very striking. Um, so yeah, it's good. I just wish we had a little bit more. But both of them, the performances are, are yeah. fantastic. I, I think what's interesting as well is that, and this is something that I think Kinnaman is very good at across of his filmography, he's not an actor who is particularly concerned with the audience liking his character. He's a, he's an actor who's concerned with the audience maybe understanding his character or where, where they're coming from. But he doesn't, he doesn't go out of his way to be likable. I feel like the most 
consistently likable he's been is probably Rick Flagg in The Suicide Squad. And even then, like, that is not a super great guy, you know, by definition. But Ed Baldwin, hugely flawed individual, hugely flawed uh, in For All Mankind, hugely flawed in um, House of Cards, hugely flawed in Robocop, although that's, I'll be honest, most of the flaws there are to do with the film itself. But, um, but you know, he, I, I feel like he's not trying to make this guy, Brian Godlock, heroic, particularly. And I will say that because I think it's going to be relevant to some of the stuff we're going to be talking about in a minute with who the bad guys are. I don't see Brian at all as a hero. I see him as a broken down mess of a human who, having lost the most important thing in his life, his son, then proceeds to lose the other most important thing in his life, his wife, because he can't deal with, can't process, and will not, as far as we know, make any attempt to healthily process that loss in any way that is that is useful. Um, and so I think she, I, I really liked actually the portrayal of her character because, you know, she's there when he wakes up in hospital from his wounds after that opening chase. She is clearly beside him every step of the way. She's making just a, a superhuman effort to try and work through her own grief in a way that she can support him through his. Um, and there comes a point where she can't anymore because he's she's not he's not meeting her halfway, you know. And that to me is one of the signs that this guy is not the hero. This guy is if he's not meeting that woman halfway, if he's not willing to make any effort to keep her the way that she's making the effort to keep him, I think he's a pretty messed up, um, and that's putting it charitably, kind of guy. And I think that's relevant because I I did notice the same thing that I think you're going to talk about with essentially the bad guys in this film and the portrayal of the bad guys in this film. Yes. Um, they're very black and they're very brown and there's gangbangers and there's stereotypes and there's stuff which I generally don't enjoy seeing on screen. And that is what uh, we get here. And yeah, I just feel like that. I mean, I've, I've seen this film be decided as a very, as a throwback to sort of 80s type movie. and even, yeah. <laughs> and in this regard, that is absolutely true. And that feels like quite dated. And I, 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 I hear what you're saying about him not being a hero and us understanding him. And I totally get where you're coming from. That still doesn't mean for me that we need to go down the path this film does in terms of who the bad guys are. There's also the matter of how Brian Joel Kinnaman's character thinks about the police. And it's it's interesting, like, because of the whole silent gimmick, I guess the film can't uh, sort of, in dialogue, explain and clarify certain things, but it could easily be read that, you know, he has that, that there's a scene in which uh, he's driving and he sees on the wall a mill, like, F the police, and his reaction is just to scowl and to be very upset about that side of things. It's very right wing. Uh, this could easily be sort of read that way. At least that's how I read it. Um, and then you have Kid Cuddy's character. He plays a cop and apologies, I'm about to get into a little bit of spoiler territory here, but they in the end team up and given what it feels like Brian's feelings are towards cops generally, that feels very incongruous with what they do with that relationship. So all of those things 
were not my favourite. <laughs> I, I agree with you that the lack of dialogue is a real problem there in, in kind of clarifying his views. I think that's 100% correct. I think um, the impression I got was that he, he scowls at the graffiti slagging off the cops because he sees this as part of this kind of social breakdown, this this malaise. And I, I do think the film is comes from quite a, a sort of right-wing view of the world in some ways. This, this, oh, everything is falling apart. I'm the one sane guy here. And the irony to me being he absolutely isn't. Um, but um, but I think there is that that element. So I think that's why he scolds at the thing. But he, at the same time, and I think this is quite a, uh, a common right-wing view, on one hand, they worship the cops. On the other hand, they don't think the cops are doing their job right. And I think there's, I think that's going on in Brian's head. I think he's holding that sort of contradiction in his head because it, it's not just about teaming up with Kid Cudi at the end. It's also about handing over a file, a dossier of evidence that he has collected that the police either didn't have the resources to get or didn't have the warrants to get, didn't have the right to get and invade people's privacy but that he isn't bound by any of their rules so he could go and do that. So I think, it, I absolutely agree, the politics of this film are really, really troubling in that sense. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Kate Lever, host of Who's a Good Dog, the podcast for anyone who's ever loved a dog. We're one of the other podcasts in the Stripped Media family. Each episode, I ask a brilliant person to introduce me to their dog and tell me how having a dog has changed their life. Listen to Who's a Good Dog wherever you get your podcasts.
One thing that, that struck me that I think is quite interesting is that almost nobody in the film apart from Brian is white. So good guy or bad guy, there's very, you know, he's he's the outlier. It's And, you know, even obviously his wife is a Latinx woman. You've got this sort of hero black cop who I think is the, is the closest thing we have to a hero in this film. So it's not... And it's obviously made by John Woo. It's made by a Chinese man, you know? So it's not necessarily what I would have expected in terms of its politics. It's it's very, very odd, but I do think it is more in the style of, yes, those um, 70s, 80s American one man versus the world kind of white paranoia uh, films. Uh, I think there is an element of that definitely going on here, but it's but it's a little bit more complicated than that just because of who made it just because of John Woo. It's also interesting to me that this is the the writer's, I think, first major produced script. It's Robert Archer Lynn is the writer. And his films are not ones that certainly I've come across having major distribution here in the UK. Films like Prisoner, Dead Box, Adrenaline. Um, you know, he. I don't think, I think this, this must have been a big exciting moment for him to get a John Woo uh, director, you know, for his film. But but again, I don't know enough about him to sort of speculate as to his politics as a result of that. But I do think that, yeah, it, it does lean very heavily on those kind of 80s tropes. And they are horribly, horrifyingly dated is the wrong word, just just wrong, you know? Um, so that's that's not great, Jim. That's not not super good. Um, it's really not. It's really not. We, we, we touched on it a little bit there about the silence being an issue, at least for the sequence in the final act. What did you think of the the silence gimmick in general? Mm. Because on the one hand, I think it's a really cool concept, really cool gimmick, and they use it in interesting ways. And other, in other ways, I'm like, they could have done more with it. Like, he can't speak, but when is that really a hindrance to what he's doing. I feel like they could have done a lot more on that side of things where his muteness is really a problem for what he's trying to do. There's not really a standout scene like that where that comes into play. That is actually a very, that's a very good point because, you know, I think in a lot of films that would have been, there would have been something more made of that. And you see you see mm. his anger at, you know, when he when he's given the sort of voice box, um, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know the term, um, he he just rejects that out of hand. He's not willing to even consider it. And I think again, this is a, this is a uh, a sign of his lack of consideration in some ways for his wife. Who because it would be awfully helpful if the person closest to you were able to communicate if that is an option. Um, and he's not willing to make that effort, and that is not great. So so yeah, but but you're right. I mean, ableism exists in the world, and I feel like if you are going to give us a hero who effectively has a disability. It, it would be both interesting and I think important to to kind of deal with that maybe a little bit more than this does. I did have, I did wonder sometimes like, where is he getting his money? He's, he's spending yes. all his time training <laughs> as far as we know. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe she's from a wealthy family. Certainly when he goes to visit her house at the end, it's a very nice house. Um, I don't know if she's painting as a hobby or, or a career. I hope it's a career and she's doing brilliantly at it. But, but you know, I, I I did I wasn't like quite clear on some of that kind of stuff. And sometimes if we're getting this granular with his training, it would have also been good to get granular with, okay, where's the money coming from? What's what's yeah. he doing about this? Yeah. And more about his life outside of his mission. Mm. Like where where are all his friends and all this? Are they coming around to visit? They come around to check on him? 
all of that sort of stuff we don't really get. And even though I think partially that may be down to the whole gimmick that they're going for, they could have sort of, they could have dispensed with that and just still, I, I think created some interesting, unique scenes in that regard in terms of painting a wider picture of what's going on. Um, and they, they want to keep things very, sort of, I guess, lean and direct with the storytelling. And so they spend a lot of time with him watching YouTube videos and training. I did enjoy some of that. And that was sort of, it's a little bit different to what we've seen from this type of thing before, yeah. because normally they're already a badass before a tragedy befalls them, like a John Wick or whatever. Uh, here, he's going to work up to, to becoming... Uh, someone who's formidable with the driving and the gun and the knife and all the rest of it. Yeah. And even then, one thing I did like, you know, I, I touched on it earlier with that uh, uh, scene, that fight in the house, which is really, really good. Even that the, the whole reason there's a fight in the first place is because he's got the knife far too close to the goon, to the thug. And I, I was saying to myself, that's, that's far too close. Far too close. He's being yeah. far too trusting the situation. And I like that that comes to backfire on him because even though he's done all that training, he's still a novice in certain regards. And I like that they showed it that way. 100% absolutely agree. And I thought the same thing during that scene. I was like, kick the knife away, kick the knife away. <laughs> yeah. oh, it, but it is stressful and it, and it is something that you don't, I mean, I, I hear from books, it is not something that you can learn, you know, being in combat, you know, having those kind of instant reactions, it's, you know, learning will help you, training will help you react, but it will not guarantee that you can do the right thing under pressure. And so, yes, I thought it was effective that that he kind of does have a little bit of a slow way in. And I too was surprised by how much of the film was training. I thought we'd almost skip through the months faster, but I guess it's to you, John Wood's credit. You do that in a montage, easy. Yeah. But it is to John Wood's credit that he does take seriously the idea that this guy goes from having serious injuries to getting to that, you know, to getting to that stage that he goes from having a grieving but loving wife to being alone. You know, he does want to give us a little bit, bit of that in between and also establish things like the fact that he is surveilling these men. He's not just you know, turning up and killing them. And I think that's important if you're going to suggest that he accomplishes anything at the end of the day, because um, he does give the policeman, you know, a bit of something to go on, which is about oh, the best thing, I guess he does. I, I mean, I suppose, you know, um, but it's not great. I mean, it's, it's interesting how comparing this to other films without dialogue, something like All Is Lost, which was the J.C. Chandor film with Robert Redford, where he's he's entirely alone for the entire film, so there is very little reason for him to speak. Um, this one, sometimes you feel it straining against the conceit of no dialogue at all. Mm -hmm. um, I know Radio people. Radio chatter. I mean, I think yeah, I think some of the some of the reviews have suggested that having radio and TV bulletins is kind of cheating, mm. which is maybe <laughs> true. But the filmmaker makes the rules, so he's allowed to cheat if he wants to cheat, right? I mean, yeah. That's fair. But yeah, it is, it's not quite as, um, it's not always elegant in its use of the device. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think some of the chatter, I get why they were going for it. They, there is um, a shootout that takes place with a cop involved at one point, um, which actually, thinking back on it, did have some tension to it because he decides that he's going to try and help this cop out the situation. And some of the radio chatter that we hear is from, sort of from her 
uh, as he tries to help her. Um, I thought that worked well, but some of it is just lazy is not the right word, but unnecessary. Like I don't need to have known, especially given the gimmick that you're going for. I don't think they needed to have certain segments of radio chatter in the film at all. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. What about the? I mean, again, as established, this is not a Christmassy movie. But what about <laughs> the? What about the Christmas of it all? This is by Hamburg. Yes, yes you it know. Is. What about the Christmas of it all? What about the fact that it starts and ends at Christmas? What does that add? What does that give us? What does that mean for this film? Surprisingly, not that much, which is a bummer. Like, I feel like they could have done much, much more with that concept than they do. Um, you know, the most we get is that Christmas jumper, maybe a couple of elements of Marco Beltrami's score, which I have been listening to. Uh, there's a couple of tracks which are quite stirring and emotional. Uh, one of them's called Soccer on the Lawn. Another one, my favourite so far, I'm still listening to the to the score, is called Son's Bedroom. And they have that recurring riff, which is the toy uh, that he has. And that's a little bit Christmassy, I guess. And then the, and the, one of the backdrops of the climactic scene has sort of baubles hanging from the... But that is it. And I'm like, you could, you could do so much more with that concept um, than they do. Um, and yeah, I was like, you know, this is John Woo, this is Christmas. It's like, maybe, maybe Die Hard has a challenger for best action film. Ladies and gentlemen, Die Hard does not have a challenger for best action film <laughs> set at Christmas. Die Hard is still that, that film. Um, so, yeah. I, I was kind of hoping, and this maybe says something about how cheesy I can be, and I was kind of hoping for maybe some Violent Night style Christmas related deaths. Now, if people remember Violent <laughs> Night, we talked about it last year. You can go back and listen to that. But, you know, and there were things like nice. people people being stabbed with sharpened candy canes, people being, you know, mashed over the head with a tree, essentially, people being strangled by Christmas lights. You know, there was very witty use of kind of Christmas iconography in that film, even aside from the fact that the person doing all of this killing was actual Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, I thought, maybe might lean into a bit more of that, especially, you're right, in that final scene. I mean, it is a cool tree. It's one of those... Um, trees where there's no tree where someone has just suspended baubles from the ceiling in the shape of a tree um mm. obviously that's not good enough as far as i'm concerned i'm you know you know me i'm a very much into my christmas trees but at the same time i respect that that this horrible drug dealer has gone mm. to the effort of getting in i don't know who decorated that tree who did that for him is did he do it has he got a secret artistic side that he's been suppressing to be a, a murderous bastard you know did like- his absolutely zoned out girlfriend do it what's happening i mean just something off the top of my head which i've just thought about now why not have brian wear the christmas jumper that he was wearing on the night that his son on the on the day that his son got killed that that, that basically the christmasy stuff that's symbolic for what the character went through that's the whole year anniversary christmas maybe i should have written this one i'm joking i should not but (laughs) You know that, that 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 would have added a little bit more spice in that regard than than what we get. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, so it's it's an it's an odd beast. This, I mean, mm. I think maybe it suffers from the fact that certainly I and I'm guessing you went in with with really high expectations. I did. Yeah, maybe maybe it could never have lived up to those. Did you know, by the way, that that John Woo has a has a huge Christmas card list that he sends Christmas cards to journalists who've who've interviewed him through the year. 
I did not know this. Yes. Are you on said list? No, I, sadly, no. I have never had mm. the pleasure, and, and I hear it is a pleasure. I, I hear he's an absolutely wonderful man. Um, but uh, but James Dyer of the Empire Podcast has been on that list and has received a card from John Woo, which I believe is put in pride of place on his mantelpiece every single year. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many years he's had it, but that doesn't matter. It's still there. Has he got it this year? No, no. I mean, he's had one. I don't know if he's oh, had... just the one. I don't know oh, if he's okay. remained on the list for years and years. <laughs> I believe he's putting the same one out year after year. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> you know what? If I got a card from John Woo, I'd probably do the same. Right? I'd put it out. And you know what? As I got it out of the box and placed it in pride of place on top of the mantelpiece, I would do so in slow motion out of respect. <laughs> and then I would turn around and draw two guns and just hold them in a threatening manner. Are you saying that your favourite John Wee film was Face Off? Because my favourite John Wee film was also Face Off. <laughs> I think my favourite is actually Hard Boiled, but I will absolutely watch Face Off at the drop of any kind of hat you want to name. Yes. What a movie. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, amazing. Oh, I could watch that for hours. Um, okay, then. So we, we have assessed this film's Christmasiness. I mean, on a scale of one to ten, genuinely, where would you put it? In terms of the Christmasiness? In terms of the Christmasiness alone, yeah. I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I was gonna. I was, I was gonna go either three or four, and because I'm in a nice Christmas mood, I'm gonna go four. Oh, four that's out of ten. Very generous of you. Okay, let's go Isn't four out of just... ten. And how about the movie itself? <laughs> Probably around the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not my favorite John Woo, but I hope that uh, he makes films on a more sort of regular clip that what he's been doing in the last twenty years. I hope that he gets uh, sort of uh, better scripts sent to him. I think. I've been reading a couple of interviews with him and he was saying that he hadn't been offered a, a really good, interesting script for years because paycheck happened and people didn't like that it bombed and that sort of meant that he was exiled from Hollywood for a time. Um, but he's still John Will and I still believe that there's greatness in him and I hope to see that in the years to come. Amen to that. And, and I believe there's also greatness in Joel Kinnaman and if you want to see that, well... You know, like like I say, his performance in this film is good, but really, for all mankind people, you're going to love it, seriously. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll add it to my list, Helen. <laughs> there, fine. My evil plan <laughs> unveiled. I actually have been trying to get Amon to watch it for months. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, uh, Amon Warman, where can people find your work if they'd like to hear more from you? Yes, uh, I am online. I'm on the socials. Uh, at Amon Woman, I'm on the Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on the Hive, I'm on the Blue Sky, oh, I'm on far too many social media apps uh, because Twitter was my favorite until a certain someone came and ruined it. Mm -hmm. But hey ho. What a um, And uh, yeah, I also co host the Back Podcast, new episodes every Sunday with Clarice Lockley and Hannah Flint. Make sure you subscribe to that. It's fun, a lot of fun. All right. Thank you very much. And Merry Christmas, Amon. Merry Christmas to you. Well, that's it for this episode of Bah Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays!
You just heard a stripped media production.